Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles, please, and open together to Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13 is our text today. Title of the message, God's Unfailing Love, Romans chapter 9. Now, last week we began the second half of the 16th chapter, verse-by-verse journey through this incredible New Testament book. Uh, The title last week was a provocative question, what about Israel? And Paul pauses almost mid-thought in his explanation of the doctrine of justification by faith to answer that question. He takes three chapters to do so, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Now that's a loaded question to be sure. We have to be careful because anytime we address someone's cultural or uh, racial identity, we run the danger of being misunderstood or offending unnecessarily. So Paul has said some hard things about his native Israel and his fellow Jewish people in this letter. Namely, that they have in large measure wasted the great privileges and opportunities granted them by God. And he looked at some of those advantages last week. He began by saying they had the adoption. That is, God called them sons and daughters. He had an inheritance for them. He gave them covenants, that is, promises and blessings. Um, They had the example of some great and godly men and women, the patriarchs. Uh, They had the law. God gave him his revealed written word through Moses. And then, of course, the greatest privilege they had, we saw last week, is they got to be the nation from whom God was going to send the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. But Paul charged Israel that rather than being a conduit of his blessings as he intended, they had caused the nations to blaspheme And to hate the name of Jehovah because of their sin, unbelief, and hypocrisy. And because Paul understood the sting in his words and that many of them would misinterpret them as hatred for Israel, he felt obliged to say this in chapter 9. Look at verse 1. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me and in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, I'd be willing to die in their place. In fact, it seems to say he'd be willing to go to hell in their place if it were possible, though it's not. And now that Paul has made it abundantly clear that his words were motivated by love rather than hatred, he addresses that elephant that's in the room, theologically speaking. And here it is. Most Jewish people do not accept Christ as the Messiah. Now that is a problem because many, if not most Jewish people of Paul's day, believed in the concept of salvation by ethnicity. What I mean by that is they believe that God chose the nation of Israel through his covenant with Abraham and therefore they were automatically right with God individually by virtue of their being genetically Jewish. And to illustrate this, You can uh, listen to Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. The setting is John the Baptist is out there in the wilderness preaching to Jewish people. And he knows their heart. John is calling them to repentance and faith and baptism. That is, they had to be forgiven just as a Gentile did. And they resent that. 
They don't like John's message of repentance. And he says to them, do not suppose or say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. I say to you that these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. Well, Paul's doing the same thing that John the Baptist did and really the same thing that Jesus did. He's telling them that it's not enough to be Jewish, to be right individually with God, that you have to repent and be justified through faith. But here's the sticking point with many of Paul's Jewish friends then and many of your Jewish friends today. They would say if Jesus really were the Messiah and God promised that it, he would come through Israel and we have all the prophecies, if Jesus were truly the Messiah, our fathers would have recognized him. And since they didn't recognize him, Jesus must not be the Messiah. And there's a further implication they would say. If God, as you say, is saving Gentiles today, he seems to be bypassing his promise to us. And if that's true that he's setting us aside, then God is guilty of breaking his covenant promise to us. Paul, you're calling God a liar. Now that's a serious charge. In fact, I can't imagine a more serious charge. So Paul systematically in this chapter lays out four reasons why the failure of Israel to believe on Jesus does not mean that God's word has failed. And we're going to take each reason one at a time over the next four Sundays. So let's begin with the first reason. It begins in verse 6. Let's read our text. Paul writes, It is not as though God's word had failed. So right away, Paul says, I know what you're thinking. It's not true. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now we're going to follow Paul's train of thought with a very simple three-point outline. The fact, the proof, and the implication. Let's begin with the fact back in verse 6. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So the fact that Paul establishes right away is this. Salvation is not and has never been through ethnicity. He's saying not everyone who is genetically Jewish is born again. And it's never been the case. It's not that God's word has failed, Paul says. So Paul is categorically denying that Israel's rejection of Jesus was owing to some deficiency in God's word or in his character or in his power. Now he offers a reason. Namely, it has always been the case that not every descendant of Abraham is a true child of God. He says not all Israel is really Israel. Now before we trace Paul's reason for saying this through the Bible, let me remind you that Paul's not making this up out of the air. This is exactly what Jesus taught when he walked and talked on planet earth. Uh, in fact, I want you to see it with your own eyes, will you? Let's turn back to the Gospel of John. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 8, verse 31. Now you know that uh, John's primary purpose is to present Jesus as God in the flesh. But he records verbatim some conversations that Jesus has with some people who ostensibly are believers. That is, they claim to be a follower of Jesus. They are entertained by his miracles and his teaching. They certainly enjoy it when he breaks bread and fish and feeds them for free. And so they're following him around. If you know the rest of that story, there were thousands of people claiming to be believers, but when times got hard, what happened? Most of them turned around and went home. And Jesus recognized they're not all true believers. And so John 8, 31 says this, So Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. They forgot their history, didn't they? They were enslaved at least twice. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain, however. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. And I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Now mark that. He's not denying that they are genuinely genetically Jewish. He says, I know you are um, Abraham's descendants. He says, verse 38, I speak these things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you've heard from your father. Now that piqued their interest. They answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication, implying that he was. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. Now you thought Paul had some harsh words. Jesus told them their father is the devil. These are Jewish people. He's reinforcing what Paul declares that not all Israel is true Israel. The point is, salvation has never been by genetics, by ethnicity or genealogy. A true Jew, Jesus says, is one who has a heart for God, who loves and obeys him as Abraham did, who recognizes his sinfulness and ultimately runs to Jesus. Well, you look unconvinced by that proof, so let me give you some more. Let's go back to Romans chapter 9, in which Paul gives two Old Testament examples of history to prove the point that salvation is not through ethnicity. So our second point or outline after the fact is the proof. The fact is, it has never been the case that someone saved through ethnicity. The proof is from the Old Testament. Look at verse 7. He says, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of the physical descent who are Abraham's children, God's children, but it is the children of the promise. So he gives two examples, Isaac and Ishmael, example one. Let me remind you of the story in the book of Genesis. There was a man named Abram who lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Like most places on earth, it was a place that worshiped pagan idols. And one day God said to Abram, get up and go to a land that I will show you. And he did. 
God gave him further promise. He says, uh, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to uh, make your name great. I'm going to give you this land. And your descendants are going to multiply to their more numerous than the sand of the seashore and the stars in heaven. Some great promises. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God made promises to Abraham. And God told Abraham that the way he was going to carry out that promise of multiplying his descendants was specifically through his wife, Sarah. There was a promise. Up until this point, Sarah had been barren, unable to have children. In fact, she came to a point in life where she was unable by age to have children, and they had given up hope. But God said, no, I'm going to keep my promise, and Sarah's going to conceive and have a son in her old age. Well, Sarah laughed when she heard that, though she denied it. And there seems to be some doubt in Abraham's mind. And so Abraham and Sarah decided what a lot of us decide sometimes, that we're going to help God out of a corner he's painting himself into. Sarah decided what she'll do is to give her handmaiden, a woman named Hagar, to Abraham to be his wife as a surrogate through which God could fulfill this promise. And she conceived, Hagar did, by Abraham, and she had a son. They named him Ishmael. But God, after Ishmael was born, made it clear that he was not the fulfillment of the promise. Now, he was genetically Abraham's son, and really that's the point that Paul's making through his example. The Jews were saying, by virtue of being a direct descendant of Abraham, we are individually right with God. And Paul says, no, you're not, because Ishmael was a descendant of Abraham, and he was not right with God. And remember, God said, no, Sarah will have a son. And she did. And they called him Isaac. And it was through Isaac that the Messiah traces his ancestry. Now, I am quite sure that Paul knows that his Jewish friends would not be convinced by that example. Why not? Because he knows they'll say, well, of course not. Hagar was a Gentile, so it doesn't count. And so Paul says, okay, how about Jacob and Esau? His second example, verse 10. Not only that, Paul says, not just Isaac and Ishmael, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order for God's purposes and election to stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Now this may be a less familiar story to you, but remember that Isaac married the very beautiful Rebecca and she became pregnant with twins. And the first twin to be born was named Esau, and the second twin to be born was Jacob. And according to their custom, the firstborn had all the rights and privileges of the inheritance. But God had prophesied before the boys were born that the older would serve the younger. And that is Paul's point. His point is that even though Esau was born first and had all the rights and privileges, he was tricked out of his inheritance by Jacob, whose name means trickster. And he lived up to his name. The key is before they were born, before either had done good or evil, God ordained this. That is, God made a choice. Why? Because Jacob was a better human? No, he was terrible. He says to teach us about God's sovereignty. He says, quote, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. In other words, God is declaring 
hundreds of years before Christ came to earth that salvation is not by works. Because neither one of them had done anything. They weren't even born yet. And salvation is not by ethnicity because they had the exact same ethnicity. In fact, they were twins. Same mother and dad. God chose one and rejected the other. And it's not even by tradition or birth order. What does Paul say salvation is by in Ephesians? Salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's always been that way, Paul says. And the real reason is not by works or by ethnicity, because God knows our wicked heart. If it were, we'd take credit for our salvation. And since it's not by any of those things, God gets the glory. And by the way, what's our slogan here at First Baptist Keller? SDG, Soli Dea Gloria, all things for God's glory alone. Now, with that said, this is a difficult passage. I'll grant you that. But your pastors believe that God's word is meant to be understood. There's a $10 theological word for that. It's, I'm not even going to say it. But it's a big one. And it means God gave us his word and it's meant to be understood. Think clearly. What is the implication of Paul's argument that salvation is not by ethnicity or works? The implication is that salvation is according to God's sovereign plan. God's sovereignty, thirdly, is displayed in the doctrine of election. Now, how do you define God's sovereignty? Well, it's God's rule and reign over his creation. We sung, sung at least two songs this morning about God being king, right? And if he's a king, he has to rule over a kingdom. So the question is, how far does God's reign cover? Well, R.C. Sproul says it this way. There is not one maverick molecule in all the universe. <laughs> that is every single atom that God created when he said, let there be, he has sovereignty over. The Bible says it like this. He sits upon his throne. He does whatsoever he wishes. Here's the way we say it here most often. God either causes or allows all things that come to pass. The key word there is all. That is nothing happens that surprises God. As one pastor says, has it ever occurred to you, nothing ever occurred to God. He knows the end from the beginning. We can't say he didn't have anything to do with it. He's God. Now we started a new sermon series last Wednesday night in this room on the attributes of God. Relax if you weren't there. I just gave an overview. This Wednesday we start in earnest and the first attribute we're going to cover is the sovereignty of God. There's a lot of implications to that. I don't have time to cover today. But let me say this. To say that God is sovereign from this pulpit does not cause much disagreement among Bible-believing Christians. In fact, I've never said God is sovereign from this pulpit that someone shouted out, No, He's not! In fact, when I say God is sovereign, I get a lot of this. And a lot of amens, as I should. There is disagreement about this text, though. It's not over the fact that God is sovereign. The disagreement has to do with the implications of his sovereignty. In, in two primary areas. One is, one we're not going to cover today, but will later, is the problem of evil. I get most of the theological questions that I receive in the mail and 
email and phone calls and personal visits on this one. And, and to sum it up succinctly, it's this. If God is so sovereign, why do children get cancer? If God is so sovereign, why did my wife die and leave me alone? If God is so sovereign, why is there such injustice in the world? You've heard those questions. The other one, the other area of disagreement debate is the one we are going to cover today, which is the doctrine of election. Election, the word, generically means simply to choose. We elect things all the time. We elect to have a surgery or not. Um, in two months, we're going to elect new leaders. Um, when the Bible speaks of election, it's talking about God's choosing individuals or groups or even nations sometimes. Now, people, I find, fall into about three camps as it relates to the doctrine of election. And I expect, looking around, all three camps are represented here today. Uh, the first camp is out-and-out -out rejection. Someone hears the word election, they bristle and say, Pastor, I don't believe that. Don't believe in the doctrine of election. Well, that's not really an option uh, if you take the Bible seriously because the word is in the Bible. Electos in the Greek. It's found 23 times in the New Testament alone. And, and look, just historically, you know, the concept of elections in the Bible. We've already established God chose Abraham out of all the millions of people in the world, which means he didn't choose them. He chose Israel out of all the hundreds of ethnicities in the world to bless uniquely. And if you're here today and you're a born-again Christian, the Bible says you were chosen to be born again into this family. Theologically speaking, when we speak of election in the New Testament concept, context, we're usually talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. John MacArthur says, quote, The doctrine of election simply means that God, uninfluenced and before creation, predetermined certain people to be saved. That is, individual people. In fact, Peter talks about the elect in terms of a group that God is bringing together from every tribe and people group, from east, west, north, and south, and creating a new nation, a holy priesthood, for his own purposes. We call that group of people, by the way, the church. So the, the concept of, of election is clearly in the Bible. The implications of the extent of that, we certainly can and will debate. But the Bible calls those God has chosen to save his elect. In fact, the elect are addressed specifically many places in the New Testament. For example, the Bible says, make your calling and your election sure. That is, God wants you to know that you're born again. He wants you to have that assurance of salvation. Now, many Christians don't like the doctrine of election because from their perspective, it seems to violate their understanding of man's free will. They have an image of God who is just, and rightly so, he is just. But their image of justice is that everyone on planet Earth must have an opportunity, and many would say an equal opportunity to be saved, or else God is being unfair. And so they just don't want to talk about election. The problem, again, is that we know from experience that not everyone has the same opportunity to be saved, do they? For example, I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a pastor and was before I was born. I heard the gospel every day of my life. I know and have met people in other parts of the world who have never heard the gospel. 
and won't, perhaps, before they die. And yet, Paul says in this book of Romans, all men are without excuse. But it's more than the fact that Paul gives us two real-world examples from the Bible of two Jews that grew up in the same home and were, in fact, twins. It goes a little farther than that. Look at the last line of verse 13, and quoting Malachi, he says, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. I said last week I didn't like a verse. <laughs> That's a tough one, isn't it? Because we're told God is love, and He is. What does it mean that God hates? Well, I don't know all of the implications of that. I do know he's quoting the Old Testament book of Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 1, he's clearly talking about two nations that emerged, one from the seed of Jacob, the nation of Israel, and one, the nation of Edom, the Edomites, who came from Esau. And the Edomites were exceptionally wicked. And God says, I have loved that has set my affection upon Jacob, and Esau have I rejected Therefore, his inheritance will be the desert where the jackal is. That, that is, he does not share in the inheritance of Israel. And essentially, that's what he means. But it means more than Jacob have I loved and Esau I loved, just a little bit less. Right? That's not what it means. This is a strong, strong term. And it speaks of God's hatred for sin and sinfulness. So, so that's the first reaction to the doctrine. Some people just say, I don't want to hear it. The second reaction, which is very common, and maybe where you are, I don't know, is ambivalence. That is, you have mixed emotions. You can't deny it's in the Bible. It's there. We just read it. And yet, you can't get your brain around it. You can't believe that it actually means what it sounds like it means. And sometimes that ambivalence expresses itself by dismissing election as unimportant or not really a discernible doctrine in the Bible. So they, they tell jokes, right, and, and try to laugh it off and, and say, well, it really doesn't matter. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say this. What do you believe about election? Well, uh, here's my definition of election, Pastor. God voted for me. The devil voted against me, and I cast the winning ballot. Uh, that's not election, dear friends. Um, sometimes we, we redefine election to mean that it's only national and not individual. That is, God's just talking about He chose Israel for the purpose of delivering the Messiah, but God really doesn't choose people individually for salvation. Well, if that's the case, why did Paul say earlier in the chapter that I am willing to be accursed or damned if my kinsman would believe, if he's not talking about heaven and hell. So it seems that clearly he is. So these are the, the two most often seen reactions to the doctrine of election. And the third is where I hope I am, and I know many of you are in talking to you, and that is this, to embrace it, to accept it and to submit to it. And though we admit it's hard to understand, we recognize that it is in the Bible both Old and New Testament, and ultimately find comfort in it and ultimately rejoice in the doctrine of election. That is God's sovereign choice. Why is that? Because of what Paul said in chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Is he just pulling that out of the air? What is the basis of our assurance? It's that golden chain of redemption Paul gave us at the end of chapter 8, that those he foreknew... 
That is, set his affection on before we were even born. He predestined to walk in holiness. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he will one day bring to glory. Matt had it on the screen today, Philippians 1.6. He that began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion. God's promise to you is that if he chose you, he's not going to unchoose you. And he's going to keep you saved all the way through eternity. What a glorious truth that is. And I know many people who were at one time revolted by the doctrine of election that over time have come to embrace it and take great comfort in it. Now, let's make some application before we go to lunch. God's election, God's choice of Israel was an election to privilege and not to salvation. See, there's different kinds of election, right? God elected Abraham. That's a different kind of election than, than salvation individually. He elected Israel for a purpose of being a conduit of blessings to all the nations. And he elects individuals, Jew and Gentile, for salvation. So Paul is saying to his Jewish friends, salvation is not through ethnicity. It is through individual repentance and faith in Jesus. Not all who are descendants of Israel are truly Israel. He's saying the evidence of salvation is not circumcision of the outward body, but of the inward man, the heart, the soul. Salvation then, salvation then, that is in Paul's day, and salvation today is by God's sovereign grace appropriated by faith. He has proven once for all, I believe, his thesis, his original fact, that there is no salvation through ethnicity. Now, there's some implications there for us. If you are a Gentile here today, praise God that not only Jewish people can be saved, right? You are part of that. You can be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you're a Jewish person here today, rejoice as well. Because the gospel's for you too. As I said last week, there aren't two roads to heaven. One marked Jewish and one marked Gentile. There's one way to heaven through faith alone in Christ alone. And so I'd like to give all of you a gospel invitation here today. Jew or Gentile. If you're here today, the Holy Spirit is convicting you of personal sin. The fact that you have violated individually God's commandments. It's not just that you're part of the human race that is known for its sinfulness and depravity. You're a sinner. You're one of the all in Romans 3.23 that falls short of the glory of God. If God has convicted you of that sin as guilty and convinced you of the truth of that message, run to Jesus. Do what Abraham did. Obey God by faith. And what God calls you to do is to believe on Christ. That is to despair of works. We've already seen it's not of works. Despair of genetics. Maybe you're not Jewish, but maybe your parents were Baptists running back four generations. That won't save you. Run to Jesus, confess your sins, repent, and, and be saved. Now, I know, because it's awful quiet in here, some of you are thinking, well, Pastor, if I believe that, I'd think God was unfair. I'd maybe even think he was unjust. 
Well, if you're thinking that right now, guess what? You're on the right track because that's exactly what Paul knew you would think. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. That's what we're going to talk about next week. The fact that just because Israel in large rejects Christ does not mean that God is unjust. Let's pray until we meet again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this is a hard word. We don't take it lightly. Men and women have debated it and discussed it for millennia. And yet, Lord, we have to admit it's in there. We can't just jump over it and skip on to chapter 12 and go on our merry way. We've got to deal with it. And so, Father, um, I know my own understanding of this doctrine has come over many years and a lot of prayer and discussion. And, Lord, I make no claim to have perfect knowledge of your will or your word. But, Lord, I thank you for what I can understand and do understand. It gives me great hope and great assurance that I'm not some accident or some last-second add-on that before I was born, you knew me. You chose me. And that in the right time, you called me and you sent people to share the gospel with me. And it's no accident that I'm in your family. You did it. Father, I'm also encouraged because I know that if I had to choose you, I never would. If I had to stay saved, I could not. But because you chose me and you've promised to sustain me, bring me to glory, I can rest assured that I cannot send my way out of your love. Father, that's not just true for me. That's true of every Christian in this room. Father, I pray as we grow as individual Christians and as a church, that you'd grow us in the understanding of the doctrine of election, not so that we could boast about our intellectual superiority, so that we could make much of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.